Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of June 11th, 2022. And tonight we're going to be looking at Kurdistan and the very grim news which is receiving shamefully little coverage from both Syrian and Iraqi Kurdistan. And what amazes me is what short memories we seem to have. Do you remember in 2014 when the world was transfixed by the heroic defense of Kobani, the Kurdish city in northern Syria that was besieged by ISIS? Kobani became iconic that year when the city's Kurdish defenders waged a desperate resistance against ISIS. This was led by the YPG, the People's Protection Units, the local Kurdish militia, and the women fighters of the YPG especially became global icons. And the world, or many of us in the outside world, became aware then of the anarchist-influenced utopian social experiment in the Kurdish areas of northern Syria, which are collectively known to the Kurds as Rojava, meaning the West, that is to say, Western Kurdistan. And in a grim portent of what could have been the fate of Kobani, that year 2014 also saw the beginning of the genocide of the Yazidis, the indigenous ethnicity in northern Iraq, after their principal town of Sinjar was taken by ISIS, and the inhabitants either massacred or, in the case of the women, reduced to actual chattel slavery. Now, since then, the Yazidis have armed and driven out ISIS and recovered their territory and established an autonomous zone of their own called Ezidikan, and what is happening in Rojava and Ezidikan today? While the world is distracted by Ukraine and the greater nexus of global crisis? Well, here's a headline from the Counter Vortex website last month. Syria, Turkish drones target Kobani. Two drone strikes targeted the Kurdish city of Kobani in northern Syria on May 11th reports the Rojava Information Center, which is monitoring the conflict on the ground. For the past weeks, Turkish-backed Syrian rebel factions have been shelling villages in the countryside around Kobani with howitzers and mortars. The attacks are apparently being launched from the area immediately to the west, which is held by Turkish occupation forces and allied militias. Some 35 drone attacks on the Kobani area have already killed at least 13 people and injured 34 in 2022 alone, according to the Rojava Information Center. Now, since the Turkish invasion of the Kurdish Autonomous Zone of Rojava in late 2019, Kobani has been a precarious enclave of remnant Kurdish control in, unfortunately, an uneasy alliance with forces of the dictatorship of Bashar Assad, a very unfortunate reality about which we'll have more to say later. 
But now those last remnants of Kurdish control may be falling to a new Turkish aggression. Over the past weeks, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been ramping up threats to invade more areas of northern Syria, saying on June 1st that he plans to, quote, clean up Tal Rafit and Manbij of terrorists, end quote, two of the principal Kurdish-held towns in the region, and establish a greater security zone, quote-unquote, in Syrian territory along Turkey's border. Now, much of this region is controlled militarily by the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, the coalition of the main Kurdish militia, the YPG, or People's Protection Units, and some allied Arab militias, although the YPG seems to be its biggest constituent entity. And while the U.S. has actually backed the SDF to fight ISIS, Turkey calls the YPG, at least, a terrorist organization, quote-unquote, because of its ties to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, the Turkey-based Kurdish rebel organization which took up arms in the 1980s. Now, we should briefly go over the uh, politics of the PKK because it's pretty critically important here. It started out back in the 1980s as pretty Stalinist and separatist, but famously, their imprisoned leader, Abdullah Ocalan, underwent uh, something of a political conversion in prison some 10 years ago, reading up on Zapatismo and Murray Bookchin and anarchism, and reformulated the praxis as seeking autonomy for the Kurdish regions of Turkey and ultimately of Syria, Iraq, and Iran, rather than a separatist state, and reconceiving power as something that flows up from below through popular assemblies, rather than being imposed down from a central committee. And yes, it is something of a contradiction that because the, uh, you know, the great leader, Abdullah Ocalan, was converted to anarchism, or at least an anarchist-informed vision of autonomy, and uh, then the whole movement followed him, yeah, that's something of a contradiction. But as we know, the historical process moves forward through a process of contradiction. So uh, a ceasefire in Turkey was worked out after the PKK officially abandoned separatism, although the ceasefire has broken down in recent years and Erdogan has launched new offensives against the PKK and their supporters and their zones of de facto control in Turkey's east. And this is in part due to the allied Kurdish movement across the border in northern Syria, in Rojava, being able to actually build a real functioning, self-governing autonomous zone, which Erdogan obviously views as a threat. Now, it's not clear that Erdogan will go ahead with a new incursion now. And a part of the reason I'm discussing it tonight is to try to help raise the alarm, which perhaps if there's enough, you know, preemptive outcry, it could discourage him. But some are speculating that Western states, most particularly the U.S., which has served as a military patron for the SDF, may be willing to turn a blind eye to such an offensive, 
If Turkey drops its objections to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Now, as we all know, of course, traditionally neutral Sweden and Finland want to join NATO because they feel, with reason, threatened by the expansionist designs of Vladimir Putin. And Erdogan is accusing Sweden and Finland of harboring Kurdish exiles who are affiliated with the PKK. And Sweden and Finland have certainly been among the European countries most critical of Erdogan's repression of the Kurds within Turkey. So the great powers may be poised to uh, betray the Kurds yet again, and the betrayal of Rojava to further Turkish aggression may be the quid pro quo for Erdogan allowing two new NATO members. Just to recap some of the recent history here, the Turkish invasion of late 2019 greatly reduced the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in northern Syria, with much territory formerly controlled by the SDF and its allies absorbed into Turkey's security zone. The towns of Manbij, Talrafit, and Kobani, the seat of Kobani Canton in the Rojava Autonomous Administration, and Kamishli, the seat of Jazira Canton to the east, remain under precarious Kurdish control, again in an uneasy alliance with Assad regime forces, with whom they have sometimes shared power, but also sometimes fought. Afrin, to the west, the former seat of the third Rojava canton, also named Afrin, was taken by Turkish forces in the first thrust of um, Turkish intervention across the border in March 2018. And it is the principal town held by Turkey and its local allies. But Ankara has maintained open designs to expand the so-called security zone and push into areas which remain under Kurdish control to the east. Hundreds of thousands of civilians were forced to flee the last Turkish offensive in northeast Syria in late 2019, and some 60,000 have still not been able to return to their homes and remain in makeshift camps either within the remnant Kurdish-controlled areas of Syria or across the border in Iraq. And it is important to note that this invasion was green-lighted by then-President Donald Trump, who pulled out the U.S. forces who had been embedded with the SDF just as Turkey invaded Rojava, allowing Turkey to do so without having to fire on troops of a NATO ally. This was a very clear-cut green light. And the U.S. vehicles, which were carrying the troops out of northern Syria across the border into Iraq, were pelted with stones and tomatoes by Kurdish youth infuriated at the betrayal. And Turkey has meanwhile launched an offensive against uh, PKK-aligned forces in northern Iraq. Which brings us to the Yazidis and Ezidikan, or the land of the Yazidis. Again, to go over some of the recent history, the northern Iraqi town of Sinjar, having been occupied by ISIS in August 2014, was retaken in November 2015. Interestingly, on the same day that ISIS carried out the Paris attacks, 
which was at least a bit of poetic justice. It was liberated by a new Yazidi self-defense force called the Sinjar Resistance Units. With help from the Peshmerga, the military force of the more conservative Kurdish Autonomous Zone in northern Iraq, but also with the help of PKK fighters who have long used northern Iraq as a staging territory. And this was the beginning of the Yazidi leadership coming into the orbit of the PKK and the autonomous zone that they established after the liberation of Sinjar, known as Ezidi Khan, being informed by the PKK's militant, secular, and feminist vision. A very interesting development. Now, who are the Yazidis? They mostly speak Kurdish, although I believe some also speak Arabic, but they consider themselves, in any case, to be a distinct ethnicity, defined by their religious faith, which is a surviving remnant of the great Gnostic tradition of the ancient Middle East, which far predates both Islam and Christianity. Related to, but distinct from, Zoroastrianism, and they are, of course, considered to be heretics by the Orthodox, and have at times over the centuries been subject to persecution, most recently by ISIS. And Azidi Khan, it seems, is now being ethnically cleansed, and not by ISIS, but by allies of the West. Another report from the Counter Vortex website from last month, Iraq, thousands displaced in new battle for Sinjar. Clashes between the Iraqi military and a local Yazidi militia have forced more than 3,000 people to flee the northern town of Sinjar. Fighting erupted May 1st when the military launched an operation to clear the area of the Sinjar Resistance Units, a militia with ties to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK. Many of those displaced are Yazidis who survived the 2014 Islamic State genocide against the ethnicity. They are now distributed in camps across Iraq's Kurdish region. In 2020, Baghdad and the Kurdistan Regional Government of Northern Iraq signed a pact to restore their joint control to the autonomous Yazidi enclave, known as Ezidi Khan. The deal has not been implemented until now, despite growing pressure from Turkey, which has carried out intermittent airstrikes on the Sinjar area, as well as against mountain villages said to be harboring PKK fighters elsewhere in northern Iraq. So the cases of Kobani and Sinjar, and more generally of Rojava and Ezidi Khan, are a moral disgrace, and the lack of attention they are receiving from the outside world is maddening. Now let's break down the politics of this a bit, especially as concerns the activist community here in New York, the United States, and the West. Because I have lost friends over this question, and on both sides, so to speak, both supporters and detractors of Rojava and the Syrian Kurds. Now, as I have griped before, the majority position 
on the so-called anti-war left is pro-Assad. The so-called Answer Coalition, probably the most significant pillar of the um, remnants of the anti-war movement that mobilized 20 years ago in the post-9-11 paroxysm of militarism, actually marches with portraits of the genocidal tyrant Bashar Assad. But virtually all of the anti-war left buys the propaganda that Assad is fighting for a secular state against U.S.-backed jihadis and is the best bet for stability and has been given a you know bum rap over the chemical attacks, blah, blah, blah. Now, this is all dangerous hogwash, which I have already dissected on previous podcasts, so I'm not going to get into it again now. But what's really maddening is that there are two dissident positions on the left, which are actually supporting revolutionary forces in Syria rather than supporting the dictatorship. And even they don't get along with each other. So you have the dissident tendency that is in support of the general Syrian revolution, that is to say the Arab-led Syrian revolution, with its origins in the uprising of March 2011. And then you have the somewhat larger dissident tendency, which is in support of the Rojava revolution, the Kurdish-led autonomy movement in the north of the country. Noam Chomsky, who I've been very critical of recently, uh, is in the latter camp, at least, even if he too has served regime propaganda in ways that I've discussed before, he's been vocally in support of the Rojava Kurds, as was famously the late David Graeber. Uh, a writer I like a lot better than either of them is Meredith Tax, who wrote a really excellent book about the defense of Kobani, entitled A Road Unforeseen, Women Fight the Islamic State which was among the first of several titles about the Rojava revolution. But I find that there is seemingly little overlap between the folks who have read these books about Rojava and those who have read works such as The Impossible Revolution by Yassin Al-Haj Saleh, a veteran of Assad's prisons and a longtime left-wing dissident about the general Arab-led revolution in Syria and the dictatorship's genocidal response to it. And just as the Arabs and Kurds in northern Syria have been pitted against each other on the ground by great power games, so the activist communities here in the U.S. and Europe, in support of the Syrian revolutionary forces, have been pitted against each other. So let's examine how this works. Let's uh, turn our attention first to the Rojava propaganda partisans, who tend to be anarchists. And uh, my biggest criticism, first and foremost, is that they don't want to acknowledge, or have certainly been rather slow to acknowledge, the collaboration of the Rojava Kurds with U.S. imperialism. 
The SDF was really formed just as the Rojava Kurds were establishing their pact with the United States and the Pentagon. And the SDF was the ground force that um, took the ISIS de facto capital of Raqqa in 2017. And Raqqa was bombed savagely by U.S. warplanes as a part of that same campaign. And the Arab-majority city of Raqqa is still held by the Kurdish-majority SDF. And many of its inhabitants clearly view them as occupiers. Elsewhere, in territory they have taken from ISIS, Kurdish forces are running prison camps, most significantly that at Al-Hal, where some 70,000 suspected ISIS militants or sympathizers and their families are being held. In the Kurdish-held town of Hasaka in January, there was a prison uprising, which was finally put down with the help of U.S. airstrikes. And Kurdish forces have repeatedly fired on protesters in Arab areas that they occupy. The most recent such case that I'm aware of was last May 2021, when Kurdish forces shot dead at least eight protesters in the town of Manbij, where demonstrations apparently broke out against military conscription by the Kurdish-led autonomous administration amid growing discontent over economic conditions. And the terrible irony is that with the SDF occupying Arab-majority areas that they took as part of their campaign against ISIS, and Turkey occupying Kurdish-majority areas as part of their campaign against Rojava, you now have Turks and Arabs occupying Kurdish-majority areas and Kurds occupying Arab-majority areas, which is obviously inflaming ethnic tensions. And the greatest political tragedy is that the Rojava Kurds have essentially been forced by Turkish aggression into an uneasy alliance with the Assad regime and Assadist forces who had been driven from Raqqa, not by ISIS, but by militias affiliated with the Free Syrian Army in 2013, are now back in Raqqa. Assad has apparently sent a, at least a token force into Raqqa with the acquiescence of the SDF, which is occupying the city, in turn with the acquiescence of the United States, I will point out. So uh, a de facto, at least, anarcho-fascist alliance is unfortunately a thing because the Assad regime is unequivocally fascist. Now, wow, do the anarchists really hate it when I say that, that there is an an anarcho-fascist alliance, if an uneasy one in northern Syria, but it's a reality. It's a very paradoxical reality, but it's a reality. Now, uh, in January 2019, we saw the arrival in Washington, D.C. of Ilam Ahmed, who was the uh, co-president of the Syrian Democratic Council, the civilian wing of the SDF, to attend Donald Trump's State of the Union address. She and her delegation actually met with Trump at the Trump International Hotel after they touched down, 
and he reportedly told the group, I love the Kurds, and promised that they were not going to be killed by Turkish forces, which, of course, was a lie. Because as we've seen at the end of that same year, 2019, Trump greenlighted the Turkish invasion of Rojava. Making it even more surreal, Ilham Ahmed attended the State of the Union as the special guest of then-Hawaii representative Tulsi Gabbard, the best friend of fascist dictator Bashar Assad on Capitol Hill. Gabbard tweeted about it, and the Turkish press actually ran photos of Ahmed standing behind Trump at the State of the Union. So, you know, I have to wonder if Ahmed, who represents a radical left Kurdish revolutionary movement that is influenced by anarchism, is aware that the presidential bid of her host, Tulsi Gabbard, had been endorsed by David Duke who, of course, shares Tulsi's fondness for Bashar Assad. And when Gabbard notoriously met with Assad in 2017 in Damascus, it was not to make peace with an enemy, but to support an ally. The delegation she was a part of was filled with regime sycophants, including adherents of the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, the SSNP, which, as its name implies, is a neo-fascist formation. The SSNP was briefly in power in Syria in the 1950s and brought ex-Nazis in to help run the security apparatus in the manner of Bolivia under the right-wing generals. Today, the SSNP is a kind of satellite party of Bashar Assad's equally fascistic Ba'ath Party, which has also availed itself of Nazi talent, most particularly Alawa Brunner, who had been the right-hand man to Adolf Eichmann, and who died in Damascus in 2001 at the age of 98, where he had been enjoying the protection of the Assad regime despite being one of the world's most wanted criminals. And neo-Nazis and fascists in Europe have formed their volunteer militias to fight for Assad, just like European anarchists and ultra-leftists have formed their volunteer militias to fight for the Kurds. So how strange that these two diametrically opposed forces should find themselves at least de facto on the same side. And Ilam Ahmed, if you're listening tonight, I absolutely understand the military pressures that Rojava has been facing from its enemies. But it was still not really a great optic to be hanging out with someone who hangs out with fascists. Just saying. And that was a reference to Tulsi Gabbard. As for Donald Trump, I'll go further and say that he actually is a fascist if a very crude and non-ideological one. And many of the Rojava propaganda partisans portray all Arab resistance and rebel factions in Syria as jihadist and pawns of Turkey, not acknowledging that they have been forced by Assad aggression into an alliance with the Turkish regime. Now, Erdogan is an aspiring dictator, at least, 
and has committed war crimes against Kurds, both within Turkey and in Syria and in Iraq. But as Erdogan has assumed the role of the protector of the last zone of Arab rebel control in northern Syria, in the provinces of Idlib and Aleppo, he has bought the loyalty of some of those rebel factions. And Arab rebel factions collaborated with the Turkish aggression against Rojava. And it is also certainly true that the Turkish intervention has coincided with the most reactionary, cultural conservative, Islamist elements of the rebel movement coming to the fore, and the more democratic and secular elements being sidelined and repressed. And elements of the Arab resistance that are collaborating with Turkish forces have carried out atrocities against Kurds. A representative of the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights warned in October 2019 that Turkey may be held responsible for executions and civilian casualties that had occurred in the context of its military offensive in northern Syria, particularly noting reports of, quote, summary executions carried out by fighters belonging to the Arar al-Sharkiya armed group which is affiliated with Turkey, end quote. And propaganda partisans of the Arab-led Syrian revolution here in the West, well, certainly not for the most part, rallying around reactionary factions like this Arar al-Sharkiya, have unfortunately been playing into the stigmatization of the Rojava Kurds portraying them as unreconstructed Stalinists and pawns of the Assad regime, which is a dangerous distortion. And here, unfortunately, I have to uh, call out Rohini Hensman, author of the book Indefensible, Democracy, Counter-Revolution, and the Rhetoric of Anti-Imperialism, which we reviewed on uh, the podcast of March 19th of this year and gave it a glowing review because I'm really, I'm very grateful to her. I'm very grateful to Rohini Hensman for having written this otherwise excellent and important book, particularly timely for this moment where so much of the so-called anti-imperialist left is lining up behind these war criminals like Putin and Assad. But, the very fact that it is an otherwise excellent and important book makes the distortion that she engages in about the Rojava Kurds all the more frustrating and disappointing. I read from the text. In July 2012, Assad's forces withdrew from this area of northern Syria that we're discussing. <clears throat> and transferred control of most security and administrative bodies to the PYD, the Kurdish-led Democratic Union Party, in the Kurdish majority areas of Afrin, Jazira, and Kobani, allowing the PYD to set up its own government in Rojava, or Western Kurdistan. This was almost certainly a deal brokered by Putin between two protégés, Assad and the PKK, 
with the PYD undertaking not to fight against Assad, while Assad handed over not only power in Rojava, but also weapons to the PYD and its armed wing, the People's Protection Unit's YPG. Now, I'm sorry, Rohini, but I really find this to be very unconvincing, and I might even go so far as to say baseless. The Kurdish movement in northern Syria is explicitly conceived as revolutionary, and it began to spread after the spontaneous uprising against the regime in the town of Kamishli in August 2004. The Democratic Union Party, or PYD, formed the previous year in the ideological orbit of the PKK, began to gain a wide following after that, with the collapse of the Assad regime in Rojava in 2012, the PYD assumed power in the region, and the Rojava Autonomous Zone was established. There was some fighting with the regime at this time, particularly in Kobani, but largely the regime abandoned this northern periphery of the country because the Arab heartland around Damascus and Aleppo and Homs was threatened by uprising and insurgency. And, you know, they've been trying in recent years, repeatedly, the Rojava administration, led by the PYD and the regime, to come to terms. But it keeps breaking down because the regime will not accept their demands for regional autonomy. And it is repeatedly broken down into actual fighting between Kurdish and regime forces. And this talk about how it was a deal with Rojava Autonomous Zone being established with regime connivance and the regime arming the Kurds, is baseless and dangerous speculation, which is contradicted by the reality that, you know, once again, the PYD and the, the Autonomous Administration of Rojava has not been able to come to terms with Assad, and the alliance keeps breaking down, and the alliance itself was a result of the Turkish aggression of 2019 and didn't really exist before then. And, I will add, it's also a real stretch to call the PKK a protege of Putin. So, I'm sorry, Rohini, I really am. And I'm sorry all of my buds in the anarchist scene here in New York City who don't talk to me anymore, because I've raised some difficult realities about the Rojava Kurds. So, I don't care how lonely the ground I've staked out here is. A general... Arab-Kurdish ethnic war in northern Syria would be an absolutely disastrous outcome. And that is, unfortunately, the trajectory. And it is going to take some real honesty and grappling by the partisans of both sides to break that trajectory. And once again, trying to end on a note of hope, I will point out that the Arab rebels and the Rojava Kurds once were united. In 2014, after ISIS seized much of Syria's north, elements of the Free Syrian Army, the main Arab-led rebel coalition, which has since fractured, joined in a united front with the Rojava Kurds and the YPG to beat back 
ISIS before the alliance fell apart, largely due to great power meddling. This was the inspiring moment of real hope that shows that such an alliance is at least possible. So I say urgently at this moment, Turkey hands off Rojava and Turkey hands off Ezidi Khan. And I say so without equivocation, but also with no illusions. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org, where I have been assiduously blogging about everything I've been talking about since the beginning of the Syrian revolution in 2011. All my claims there are hyperlinked and documented. Countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Throw us a dollar or two per weekly podcast. It'll make a big difference in terms of keeping us going. It really will. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.